you know what I've been doing this week? I have I, I found I found this plugin for it's in Audacity and it's called Paul Stretch and it uh, it allows you to extend tunes by like the magnitude of 10 20 times while keeping it relatively um unaffected sounded as in so it doesn't go all in um, pitch digitally warded. yeah yeah so i had um comic bagley's album um you know the one that has the it's the concertina but it's concertina over a few pages i forget the name of it yeah anyway yeah. so like the yellow tinker is the the first one on it so put that on maybe times 20 so the tune lasts for like 12 and a half minutes just gorgeous i mean the album was never intended for this but things like the breaths or the release of the air that because it's mm-hmm. at the particularly the start of the tune oh my god it is gorgeous so what is i've i've been working i've been doing a fair bit of writing this week that has been my soundtrack and it's been so much fun it, it can yeah. get a bit frustrating because the um a lot of the chord progressions they don't resolve how you want them to because it just takes such a long time before it goes on but these amazing bits of tension build up and then oh yeah particularly then when you get to the crossover in the tune I, I, i'm trying to remember the, the second tune on on the in that set but that with that transition is just oh gorgeous so if anyone has audacity and wants to waste time doing something that will probably only <laughs> deliver if you're someone like me use paul <laughs> stretch it's amazing uh, i remember when that first uh that first became available i think it was in um adobe audition and mm-hmm. it was like this amazing tool when you were trying to uh, produce radio things to fit in at 26 minutes and 30 seconds and you had something that was 26 minutes and 35 seconds long yeah and you just didn't want to you didn't want to tweak any of your fades you could just about squeeze it without garbling it you know Five yeah. seconds was all you had. Like you could just. I was, it in there, I've but. been training my ear as well. Remember, I, I mentioned here that I've been listening to audiobooks. Aye. I've been doing the opposite with audiobooks. I've been trying to trying to trick myself. So I go in and I set the uh, the, the the readback speed to be one point one, mm-hmm. but try not to remember. So try and do it when I'm busy, and then I'll go back in and listen, and then I'll do it again. So I'm up to about one point four, and that seems to be my tolerance. That I'm like, nah. <laughs> this sounds too fast. Something's gone wrong here. Something sounds weird. <laughs> well, I I uh, I speed read uh, Bleak House in one night uh, for an English tutorial when I was at uni. So I'm years ahead of you on that, Darren. What do you mean speed read? I just read it in one night. Just blasted through it. Started at like eight o'clock at night and finished at like four in the morning, five in the morning. Like as in with your eyes? That with my eyes. That's with so, my actual eyes that's and there so was like old school so analog. many pages Bro, so many you're such pages. a hipster oh my god it was wild you're one of these and people I, I you didn't have even, to see the words in front of you for it to make I, sense i hadn't even taken speed or there was no drugs involved i was just actually just sitting there sped on by the panic of having to turn up to a tutorial the next day and and give a paper on bleak house so <laughs> Happy days. <laughs> happy days. So not as happy as we were to get a chance to speak to Clee Donlin, though, today's guest. Um, uh, she's a fiddle player and she's from East Clare. And 
Um, I think this is just a lovely interview and we cover a lot of really interesting stuff, including the much discussed Nya, which I know has pre preoccupied you mightily. I'm going to bring something up in the outro. So right. if you're so, interested in me waxing philosophical about the Nya, hang on in the outro. All right. So here's Clee Donlan. Enjoy. Clee Donlan, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Thank you so much, Darren and Dominic. Clee, tell me, what did we just hear? Well, we heard um, two reels. The first one was called The Corner House and the second one was called The Glen Allen. 
Um, they were, I suppose, when you said to play a tune, I said that what came to mind was, I suppose, um, one of my formative teachers, Paddy O'Brien from Tipperary. Um, they would have been maybe one of the first set of tunes he would have given me um, when I was playing and travelling over and back there with my parents when I was young, maybe around 13. And that second tune, um, I... I learned that tune as Sonny Martins. Have you heard it called that before? I actually haven't heard it called Sonny Martins, right. but I've heard it called, I think, the Kilimele as well. Um, right. It's it, it's just, it's it was lovely to hear it because what struck me about it was it, it's a tune that I've always struggled to make sound beautiful and you made it sound beautiful. And it, it really, because cause it's so simple melodically and the first half, is repeated in the second half, just up an octave, more or less. It's all about the ornamentation, right? Yes. Um, well, and the phrasing. Yeah, well, I suppose it's the phrasing, but um, as you say, the melody part, it's, you know, I, I suppose I always find it um, um, personally when you're playing music that has been given to you many, many years ago by great um, musicians, um, you know, making that your own, I suppose, as you say, outside of the melody, is um, the challenge and um, mm. I suppose ornamentation then is very individual. Um, I would consider myself as um, a simple style of player, to be honest. You know, I don't use a lot of ornamentation, but I suppose there's lots of different ways of um, presenting the tune in, in the bowing or the phrasing, as you say, um, of the melody. I know when we spoke before, before you had mentioned how you mentioned your style was quite typical of kind of an old East Clare style. Is, is that what would that identify in an old East Clare, East Clare style, not overly ornamented? Um, well, I, I I just think, you know, people's interpretation of ornamentation can be very mixed. So, I mean, I personally believe there's more than um, one way of ornamenting and sometimes it can be um, as challenging to hold notes or, you know, um, with the even with the bowing and the phrasing. Um, sometimes less can be more and vice versa. So so I don't think that it's it's less. There's a definite in East Clare um, music playing, there's a very definite swing, I think, to the playing. Um, and as I said to somebody a while back, we call it the Nya, you know, that I remember having, I had Mary Mack in the studio as well myself a while back. And that's kind of like a a phrase that we'd often use. So I suppose it's really about the swing and the rhythm primarily first, but unlike, I suppose, mm. maybe other styles in maybe Donegal or other places that would vary, they might have a, a lot more, um, I suppose, ornamentation with the left hand as well, although they have very fast bow hand on the right hand as well. So I suppose um, the style I would be coming from would be very much, I consider an older style, um, a simpler style, very synonymous with East Clare, I think, um, with a lot of maybe the older players. But it's so it's it's how I play it, you know. Who are those players, Clay, that you're talking about? Well, I suppose, you know, the very, very first person I would have played with, who wouldn't have been, a, isn't a big name out there at all, would I had the opportunity to have one tune when I was only starting to learn fiddle with Martin Woods. And Martin Woods would have come from our locality in Mount Shannon. 
And I remember my dad bringing me over to his house and we sat by the stove. And I think I had just a very simple tune. I don't even remember what it was, but um, Martin Woods. And it was like an older, older generation at the time. And I think, you know, Martin himself, I would have then in later years played with Seamus Bogler, who's my neighbour. And Seamus would have played for years with Martin as well. And he used to play um, here in the Merriman Tavern inside in Scarf, which was a well-known venue for um, bigger acts, you know, going back through the years. But um, and Martin himself, I think, used to only play even a three quarter size fiddle. And, mm-hmm. um, and I suppose then the other influences around would have been um, that you'd have, I would have been exposed to would have been P. Joe Hayes and, Mar- and Francie Donlan. But I have particular, I suppose, um, affinity with Francie Donlan. I think he was he was very, very embracing. There was something about um, Francie as well. Um, that it was just, I suppose, in, the, in my earlier years, I was very shy as a player. So um, it wasn't that I was very forthcoming in my playing, but I was listening a lot um, and I suppose absorbing it that way. And um, and then Paddy O'Brien, you know, Seamus Bugler, myself, who I played with for years as well, would have been an influence. And then, you know, going to Paddy O'Brien, the box player, the great composer over in Tipperary. I went over uh-huh. there for two years with my parents. They drove us over and back. Um, so there is actually a, a, a mix there, uh, kind of going from East Clare across to Tipperary. And then, of course, on the other side, um, even though I never met the man Paddy Fahey in South Galway, um, you know, you'd have had his tunes as well and hearing them. So you'd have uh, going back through the years, there would have been um, music coming from that side as well, you know. Um, I'm kind of known for asking maybe they're very simple questions, but maybe not. My question is actually around when you said the these when you use the word the nya and you, mer- you mentioned Mary McNamara that, that's actually who I actually heard use that expression for the first time ever and really since then I've been st- struggling to kind of get a grip on what it really means for for you w- what is the nya I suppose for me when I when I can express it in my music um it's it's that conversation it's that statement so, you know, when you I, for me, when I'm in the tune, I really feel like there is that story going on that you when you get into it, you, you don't think about the melody as such. And so when I when that expression comes out, that yeah, and that has been said to me, I suppose it's more unconscious than conscious. But um, when that does, when I have that experience, I suppose, then you're you're in the conversation. It's almost, you know, what this tune is saying. You know, you've got your interpretation of it. So you're in really good, you're in good flow when that happens. Because really, it's it's one of those intangible things. I, I think, I think I'm, I understand in theory what it is, but maybe as a, a non-player and having not reached the Nya, it's a little bit harder to um, to understand. I think with the way you described it there, that's make, starting to make sense. It's when, it, it's when you're truly embodying the tune and it's it's you know what i I have this thought in my head and it's shocking but i feel like you know when you're watching something like the voice or somewhere's got talent or something like that and they turn around to someone and they say you you really embodied that song you that was so believable you're in it 
it, it, that's what I think it might be. Am I in the right location for that? Absolutely. And to put it in, I suppose, in a very simple alternative context is like, you know, when you learn to drive a car, you very consciously do one step, the next step, the next. You're extremely conscious of it. We do that and we learn a tune. You're conscious of the melody. You learn the melody. You learn the the format. um, And then after a while, following the format, you stop thinking about it. And the same when you drive a car, you stop thinking about it. And then after you stop thinking about it, you react differently to the surroundings, you know, when you drive a car. And it's the same with the music. When you stop thinking about the melody, then your own print come, you, you, you put your own mark on it. And that's kind of instinctive. Well, for me, it's instinctive. You know, I can try and do something in a phrase that somebody else does, but it might it might completely throw me off kilter because it isn't within my expression of the music, if that makes sense. Such a lovely way of describing it. And, you know, if, you know, for, for a while, we, we, we probably all do that at different stages when you're learning, you know, um, you know, I I suppose I didn't play for a good few years for um, during my journey. And I went back to university when I was 40 and I went back and I kind of poured myself into the music and studied a bit. And I would have gone through that stage as all students would, whether you're learning informally or through sessions or, or in college or whatever format. But we first we have to mimic, you know, when we're being taught something, we have to mimic at them and for quite a while. And then you get into the flow of it. And ultimately, we'll all put our you come and find your own way of expressing it then. And I suppose, you know, sometimes that can be the challenge um, is to accept your own expression of your music. I think that's when you can probably play it at its best, you know, um, and because we, we all express it differently. And, you know, you can love um, different musicians for um, different sounds and different ways of expressing the very same tune, which could be completely pulled apart. But that individual expression comes out then, you know. Yeah, sure. So, where, where did you um, where did you start finding the music, it, uh, particularly learning it? What what was your entry into it? My entry into music was definitely um, at home with my parents. Um, you know, I was just thinking about this on the way in today. Um, I grew up, you know, my both my parents, they first and foremost loved dancing and they were a wonderful duet together. And they both um, sang. Um, my, my mother is still alive, thankfully. My father has passed 26 years ago now. But um, so they both sang. And I suppose um, the radio was always on in our house. Um, you know, I hear stories of other people where they would have gone to different houses and got to play with different musicians. I, uh, my learning was a little bit different, but the radio was a big source um, of music. And, you know, Kieran Mahuna, who was the great radio broadcaster, would be on and on Sunday mornings or Cayley House on Saturday nights. And as well as that, my parents, I suppose, when I was quite young, when they went to various different sh- sessions, my mother was um, brilliant at bringing the old tape recorders and would have taped a lot of great stuff through the years and she was very very diligent in writing out the sources and who was playing so between the radio and um, the tape recorders there was always music going in our house at home and 
then on many uh, occasions, my parents, they loved to dance as well. So when I was very young, if I was good enough on a on, on a weekend night when they would practice um, set dancing, with they used to have, be involved in a half set. And um, Mary and Michael Sheedy were the other half of the set. And when they would come to our house, the music would be turned on. And if we behaved, we could sit on the table with our pyjamas on and watch them, you know. So so it was very much um, I, at home, first and foremost. And, um, and then, and you know... Was Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Sorry. Um, you know, then getting, I suppose, uh, Mount Shannon itself at the time wouldn't have had a lot of traditional music. Fecal isn't far away, but we wouldn't have gone up there that much when I was younger. Um, but, you know, between the dancing and the singing um, and the music on the radio at home. And then my parents would have brought us to some music lessons. So I would have first um, learned some music from Vincent Griffin, who just lives up the road from where I am. I'm talking to you from today in Scarif, um, a great master fiddler indeed from Fecal. Um, so I would have started off with Vincent and then, you know, as I said, went across to Tipperary for two years with Paddy O'Brien. And then my formative learning, I suppose, would have stopped at around um, maybe 15. And um, so we would have just played at home ourselves, my sister and I, a little bit. And then I, you know, later on in life, I didn't when I married and had a family, I didn't play for quite a few years. And then I was subsequently went back to it, as I was saying earlier. When you're listening to the to the radio and um, like there was a bit of a ritual in our house about listening to the radio, it sounds did you have a similar experience that the, the Saturday night? Absolutely. Saturday night was a bath. And the shoes were polished, the radio was on, <laughs> the fire was going <laughs> and it was absolutely a ritual in our house. Um, it was all, the radio was always on and, and the tapes, you know, and so you were getting, you know, a cross section. There was a kind of a mixture, you know, I remember Foster and Alan, my mother loving them at one point. There was a mixture of musics going on. It was always primarily traditional music, um, but um, it was definitely a ritual in our house as well. Yeah. Um, did, you, did you mention that your mum and dad both sang? Yeah, I mean, they both would loved to sing. First, you know, as I said, they, they were dancers, a great duet dancing. But um, so my mm. father and mother both used to, you know, they'd love the singing session at the Willie Clancy Festival and they could spend an entire there and day in there. Um, they would have been very involved in a lot of the singers circles together through the years. And um, so developed a passion for that. So they would have both sang primarily at home, um, but definitely out in singing sessions as well um, and my father had even taken up the banjo and had just maybe three or four tunes off in it he took it up much later in in well he died at 51 my own age now but he um, I suppose maybe in his mid 40s just took up the banjo so there was this development more and more development going on I suppose with my parents I, I, I'm guessing as, as the kids got a bit older they maybe had a bit more time for doing, um, you know, learning music and, and songs as well, because we were reared on a farm. So there was a lot of um, outside work and, you know, on the farm. So um, 
They did. They they learnt they learnt um, a lot of songs, and I suppose after a whole period of not playing for years, on as I said, my father died at fifty one on his tenth um, anniversary the year before it. Um, he had so many f- friends throughout the con- the country of Ireland, to be honest, and was w- very very well known amongst singer circles in particular, and I suppose locally musically as well. Um, he was a very round character and was very involved in drama as well and loved handball. So he had a lot of interests. And I suppose mm-hmm. on the eve of, of that year before his 10th anniversary, I decided to try and um, gather songs that he sang. So I spent a year researching and contacting a lot of his friends throughout the island and going through recordings and trying to put um, a compilation CD together of songs that he sang. And at the time, I just made 300 copies because it wasn't really a commercial venture. And but um, last year he was his twenty fifth anniversary, and over the years I I really hadn't made enough um, copies of it, so I reissued it last September, and um, this time like twenty five years on some of the recordings on the album, there and most of them some of them are in informal settings, so you can hear some pub noises behind or chat or laughter or various, and some are more. Um, quieter, more formal settings. Um, But I managed to get 13 songs that were, I suppose, um, good enough to put on a CD or remaster. Matt Purcell remastered it for me um, 15 years ago initially. But it has transpired now. It's kind of recognised as a significant um, piece of social history just from the times of when it was recorded going back and it's very representative of, I suppose, a different era in Ireland in some ways um, with the recordings. So, yeah, um, that was brought out last year, so in in honour of him. Clee, what's your dad's name? Um, My dad's name was Sean Donnellan um, and he came from Kilkishan, which is about a half an hour away, but still in County Clare. And so... Uh, are we about to hear something then, um, w- one of those songs? Would this be a good time to... I think it might be a very good time to do that. Yeah. The song, I think, you know, as I said, there's 13 songs. There's a couple of his own compositions on the album. But I think the one that we'll play today is called The Binder Twine. And this one is actually a, a recording of a very good friend of the family who was a great friend of my father and my mother's as well. Um, Michael Marnon, he has composed this song and he's a great singer indeed himself. Clee, um, I'd like to actually play the song for all of us to listen to now because it, it's only three minutes long. Is that okay? And I should be I should be able to pick it up with my microphone. Dom, is that okay with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Clee, um, this isn't your dad singing, though, right? It is him singing. Yeah. Oh, it is him singing. Okay, just to, just so it's clear. So it was composed by someone else. It was composed yeah, by it. Michael Marnon. Um, this particular right. one that we're playing, it's not his own composition. All right, press and play now. So hopefully it should come through just for us here anyway. Now there's one great invention, it is my intention In song for to mention, so listen a while With mighty potential, in fact is essential To carry it with you, whatever your style For farming twas made, but twill suit any trade 
It comes in three colors of simple design. You can cut it to sizes when the need it arises. This mighty invention they call binder twine. Well, it may be amusing to find me enthusing the subject I'm choosing in verse and in rhyme. But I think it's a scandal that the wheel and the candle in song weren't lauded when firstly designed. They can sing about engines of great complications, and there are thousands of books on Professor Einstein. But I cannot relate to his complex equation. I'd rather be present, the old binder twine. Now you've heard of the builders of Egypt's great pyramids, how they struggled for ages on those steep inclines, how those rocks of great tonnage they shifted with courage and pushed them and shoved them till they were in line. Twas the slaves done the labor all chained up together with the weight of those chains, sure, they must have been crying. And I would have worked faster if only their master had tied them together with light binder twine. Now excuse my transgression, but I have been digressing, and I have a confession, and it is no lie. Last year on the road between here and Listol, me fan belt gave o'er and me wife she did sigh. You know, for repairing this great complication, a good pair of tights short will do it just fine. But my wife didn't have hers on this sad occasion, and I had to replace them with owl binder twine. Now another dimension to this great invention is used as prevention by farmers for gates. The cows there respect it, the crows they detect it, and never would cross it for fear of their fears. For tying up a hound, or for squaring out ground, or for holding up trousers that are in decline. Such versatile uses are surely exclusive to that mighty invention they call binder twine. Ah, uh, brilliant, Clee. It's funny, I, I, I suppose. I, I, I often think it's quite funny that... Um, the CD is there. If he was around, he would never have believed that it would have happened. You know, it has such a uh, it's uh, such a a definite time and sound to it. Like it's just you hear. I think his 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 way of enunciating and pronunciating, and you can I think with credit to whoever recorded the room, you get such a sense of where that was recorded. Do you know where it was recorded? Oh, all, all of the recordings on this would have been very, very informal in different, mostly, you know, um, public, uh, not necessarily always pubs, but in that public gathering setting. So whether it was in a hall um, or in a pub, that's most of the recordings on the album are like that. Maybe there might have been one recorded at home, one or two, maybe one of the sports ones, I think, where somebody local would have um, asked him. But they would have been all recorded amateur with just a handheld type of the old fashioned tape recorders, probably. Yeah, yeah. There's something very, I think, uh, there's something very special about that. And I think, you know, going back again, even to 
what you're doing with podcasts and um, anything to do with um, audio recordings in a given time, I think are invaluable. You know, um, as I said, my my mother used to always um, record on the old tape recorder as well and, you know, still have some of them at home. You know, a project, another project that needs to be done, go through them and listen to them and see what's on it. But I think the the value of having um, recordings like that are, are so invaluable, really. They they are, especially you know, as I, time goes I, on. I, I couldn't couldn't agree more with you, Clee. Um, I've done quite a lot of oral history recording um, over the years um, with various people, and without fail, um, I just have this really overwhelming sense every time I'm recording somebody that um, this is the one moment that we're going to be sitting here doing this and that they're going to be speaking about this to me and um, and it's just this um, it's just a kind of priceless artifact you know what I mean yeah um, that that was that was lovely um, you still have uh, recordings then that your mom did we would. I'd love to. We should. We should figure out to play a couple of those. A way to play a couple of those. That would be amazing. What I ha- What I. What I have is. I suppose. Um, recordings of of sessions. I still have. Uh, I suppose I have ten yeah. or twelve compact uh, compact CD or. Um, excuse me, tapes, the old tapes that yeah. I, I still have. Uh, it's another project I have to do. So we have lots of time these days once the album is out of the way. <laughs> but um, just to go through those, because I know there's bound to be some really valuable um, recordings on them as well. So I have them um, cherished at home to definitely go through them um, at yeah, some yeah. point, you know. And, you know, it's amazing because some of the quality of those old recordings is quite good. When you listen to those, when you listen back to those, do they just take you back to those places? Because I'm really, I love those kinds of, like you, as you would describe them, informal recordings. I absolutely love them. I I suppose what's so special about them is um, it's the it's the expression of the people and the mutual exchange and connection. They're the big things, you know, the expression, the connection, the naturalness of because they were, I suppose, many of them were informal. People were expressing themselves openly and connecting in a way, I suppose, that's probably a little bit lost nowadays um, or that's at least different, I suppose, you know, the uh, um, and I suppose that's what's really special about them. And it's it's probably harder to capture that atmosphere um, as much in today that, than it was then. It seems like I, I have memories of, you know, my parents being younger than I am now, but having a really, really rich um, social life with the music and the singing and the dancing. And you can hear it in the old recordings, you know. And there was always, uh, I suppose as well, a great respect when there was somebody singing like on some of those recordings, there's, there was great silence and people were really listening in and people still do that, obviously. Um, but the the other expressions that are that you can pick up, um, I think they just enhance the whole performance as well. Yeah. And I, I, I do also wonder, um, is it possible for people to be as unselfconscious now as 
people were, you know, even 20 years ago when they were being recorded in, in a situation like that. You know, everyone now, because everyone has a recording device in their pocket, everyone is aware that anything you do could be recorded by somebody sitting in the corner. Just, you know what I mean? And it can be broadcasted. That's <laughs> the, but that's the main part of it. Like, it's, it's not because in the going back, a lot of people had recorders, but it still wasn't broadcastable that's right Mm -hmm. it was staying in somebody's house they were audio recording and it was all audio only and but it was going back to their private home for private listening you know which was which is very very different I think it's very very different now Um, I think there's I suppose there's it's twofold from from the musician's point of view Um, you know, being being not being asked or invited to be recorded, and that your recording can go out without permission, in perhaps mm-hmm. not the ideal setting where, you know, sometimes if people were at the end of the night or the end of a, a big long session and somebody recorded and you know put that out, um, it's there's a lot of pressure that way. Um, and um, also, I think there's a lot of p- pressure overall in recordings like we're doing audio recording today. It is going out there. It's going out live. There is, um, I suppose, um, different standards with regard to performance. Um, now, I think people were um, more natural in their expression years ago and they played differently as well. It, music has been, traditional music has become um, a lot more technical, I think. Um, very, very, um, um, I suppose the ability of younger musicians now are extremely gifted or ex- have brilliant technical ability. Um, I suppose that wasn't there years ago. And I suppose that's the other side of it, the flip side, the other positive side is that there is such access to so much music out there now for young people. You're not confined to um, the the one session that that's beside you in your home place, you know, or the, the same two musicians. And so but there, mm-hmm. I, I feel there's pros and cons to both, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder is part of it, like I think collectively the three of us, if you if we're thinking of these recordings, so I'll speak for myself. What I'm imagining is I can see the kind of pub or the kind of hall that it was recorded in or the home that it was recorded in. It's, it's a very nostalgic look and sound for me. So it, it instantly kind of transports me to a, a different time, a completely different way of life. Whereas possibly the with younger players at the moment, maybe their um, nostalgia is of a different set and setting. So what they're referencing uh, as what we would reference is a is a different. Am I I'm trying to I don't know if I'm actually explaining this properly. I think I just wonder if the nostalgia from our generation looking at the previous generations going back, if you've got the younger generations in their teens and 20s, like really were just on the cusp of the what they would be looking back on or we are the generation they're looking back on. So to romanticize the way music was played then maybe isn't the drop maybe the drive just isn't there from a perspective point of view does that make any sense at all well i think there is an element of that in it but because i think there's a different they they are operating from a different code you know um um and i do think that exists for example 
you know, I was running a festival in Mount Shannon for 10 years and um, every year I would have my house would be full of musicians that would be, you know, um, performing at the at the session. And predominantly you'd have the the table would be full the following morning, full fry up and we'd be discussing the night before the concerts, the sessions. And and I do remember last year chatting with a number of, um, I suppose, musicians of my age. Um, at my kitchen table, there was at least 10 people around the table and the conversation did start exactly what you're talking about, where um, there was a, a, a session in the pub the evening before and um, a number of younger people came in. Um, there was a lot of phone use. These are musicians, younger, you know, a lot of phone use while the older and I'm calling them older, my age, um, people were playing um, and then the younger people joined in to play performance pieces that were really, really top notch music now. They really were. Um, and then, you know, played their their own set of tunes and then stopped again and proceeded to interact with their phones again, you know, and that mm. that was the conversation. It was such a different way of interacting than what we would have been used to. Um, it would have been very, very much about, you know, sitting, listening for a while, joining in in sessions, listening to whoever the 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 um, main people were performing in that session, maybe listening first for a while, listening to the tunes that were being played. If you felt that it was an appropriate session to sit in, you know, be invited in or ask mm. and then sit down and then play with kind of the people that were leading that session. Um, so, you know, I think you're correct in that. Um, I think there is just a. they are looking back, but I think it'll be in a very, very different way to this generation. And I think that's why it's so important um, to have these recordings as well. Um, like we say, all those recordings that I listened to growing up on the radio, Kieran McMahuna, if he didn't go out and he's only I'm only using him as an example of names that was done throughout the breadth of Ireland, people gathering, going to houses, um, to pubs, to sessions, gathering songs, gathering the music, bringing them on to the next place. That's why we still have it today, you know, um, and maybe maybe it's in 10, 15, 20 years time that generation may look back nostalgically when there isn't kind of any of that left, maybe. Yeah, that natural cycle of going not against what your the, the generation before you did, but going um, alternative to what that is. And often that is kind of if there's, you know, a. I'm struggling to... I think a certain amount of it, though, is the natural evolution of all of us in that, you know, when when we grow up and we move away from home and if we're fortunate to travel and we almost, for a stage, kind of will go in the opposite to anything you've been reared with, maybe, just for different experiences or you might think what you were reared with was bit outdated and, and then you travel a bit and you mature a bit and you have all different experiences... But I do think at some point people come back and because they find value in whatever it was in their formative learning as well. So um, I suppose a certain amount of it is a natural evolution. And, and you know, there's there's good things come from all different changes that happen um, in society. Um, and being authentic is sometimes a bit of a rebellion as well. 
it's a it's a it's a counter to the counterculture of of what, what you're in of the the movement you're in to sometimes and i think that's what probably happened with the folk revival in the 60s to a large extent yeah what uh Clee, do you think uh, we could have another tune because i, I want to ask you a bit more about that you know what happens when you move away from the tradition that that you were brought up in for for whatever reason so um we, do you fancy a, a couple of tunes okay let's have another tune ah brilliant thank you um it's just starting to rain here by the way so you can probably that's probably the noise you're hearing in the background oh that's okay because i'm just listening to a drill here at this side <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> it's a much more authentic recording in years to come people will listen to this and they'll think I'm glad that they left the sounds of the rain and the drill in the background. You know, it gives a real atmosphere. You know, I can feel like I'm there. It sounds very 2020. Absolutely. So I'm just going to take the headphones off to get the fiddle. Okay. so nice what, what what was that tune just i that tune was called on cashleen or which is of course oh, yeah. um the golden castle and um you know when we were talking nostalgically back there i was mentioning p joe hayes and francie donlan and i suppose um those two 
um, great fiddlers, you know, from East Clare. They played that together live in Woolly Clancy in 1991. It's actually, I have it on my album. Um, but I suppose every time I, I actually think of them when I'm playing that tune, you know, that connection or association and... Um, um, so and that that they were recorded on um Radio the C D Kyol August Fion Fion, I think, yeah. Um in nineteen ninety one P Joe and Francie. So uh-huh. yeah, nostalgia. <laughs> um when, when you were um um at school and so on and you you were playing up until I think did you say up until you were about fifteen, sixteen? Well, that would have been the formal lessons. And I suppose in like my late teens, early 20s, I didn't. Um, um, I went, I suppose I went to England for a while, like a lot of us from college that did in my era. There was no work here at the time. So I think I fell out of playing for a good few years and then I got married and had my children. And I suppose really, I think the initiation back into the music was definitely that year I did the research on producing my father's album. Whereabouts did you go in England? I was living in London. Uh-huh. Doing, Where? you know, agency work with different <laughs> agencies, secretarial work over there for about, so over there for about a year and a half and then came back and did a little work in the bank in in Galway and then ended up in, over in the Isle of Man for a month or two because my sister was over there. It was all about trying to get work at that point, which was not very uh-huh. plentiful in 1989, 1990. Yeah, yeah. How, how did you find uh, London? Um, I found it tough enough, to be honest. Um I suppose parts of it were great fun. There was a gang of us living in a house, a Mayo man owned the house and there was probably eight of us, you know, um, squeezing into that house, paying him a few euros rent every week. So from that point of view, it was good. But um, I suppose we're talking about the late 80s over there. There was a lot of Irish people over there. And I suppose I was traveling in and out to I was living in Woolwich and I was traveling in and out to the centre of London. Um, and I suppose there was it was difficult for a lot of the Irish there as well, particularly a lot of the men, I think, on the construction sites and that I didn't quite make it up to only once or twice up to the West End, up to where the great um, tunes were on. I suppose I was in the probably the wrong part of London um, for that. So um, were you looking for tunes? No, I wasn't. I was literally there for work, trying to get work, which was, you know, it was very sporadic. And you were going, I suppose, when you were involved at a temp agency, I was going to various different places. Um, Yeah, you sort of, I've I've done that myself in London. I mean, you you get a phone call and you go where you're sent. That's exactly it. And that's the way it was. So how conscious was it to to not play music? Was it was it something you were you were conscious that you were not? participating in or is it something some other reason I, I no it was I think I suppose I had once I went when I went to college um, I suppose I didn't play as I was saying earlier I suppose I was very shy when I was younger playing and I think it stopped me playing for a while Um in my in my you know earlier years um, we say early 20s and that um 
and after the formal learning, I suppose, and I was always shy. My my parents, my, particularly, I remember my dad trying to coax me more um, to play out, but I always preferred to be in the background. Um, so and you know that that attention around the music, um, I wasn't fond of at that time, and and I suppose then you know coming into your mid late teens and that if you're if you're more shy and more self conscious. Um, I think that fed into it as well. Um, so that was more to do with my own personality, I think, at the time. Um, you know, and my sister played at the time as well. And I was always quite happy, if, you know, if she was the forefront or somebody was asked to play. So that was an easy dodge out as well. Um, so I suppose it, it was a conscious decision not to play during that time. Um, yeah. But um, and then, you know, later... And I think that was it. It was it was shyness. And, you know, you're at a stage where I suppose you're integrating and meeting a lot of different other people. So that's a distraction at that point in your life. Did you have the fiddle, would you? In, in London? Mm. No, no, no. I actually don't recall that there was any music around the area that I was living in. I know there was, you know, further west. Yeah. But, um... Um, I'm not aware that there was. Now, I didn't try and find it anyway, but um, I wasn't aware. Did you come across it? So it's it's interesting. With, um, not to compare me to you, Clee, in any way other than <laughs> other than I used to play and then I stopped for a long time. But that's the only thing we have in common uh, musically. But um, I, I when I try and think about why it is that I stopped. It's, it's interesting that you, like, I can't really put my finger on it. I, um, I, it, it just sort of, I don't know, it's, it's kind of weird. It just sort of slipped away from me and suddenly there was 15 years had gone by and I hadn't, you know, done anything. What age were you when you kind of... Do you, do you play now on? though, Dominic? I, I have started in a, in a, um, in a more concentrated way in the last couple of years, essentially since just before we started doing this podcast, yeah, and since moving to Australia, actually, that's when I've started engaging with it and um, and trying to learn to play things, uh, just trying to play better, I think, and to really apply myself a bit. Yeah, I think, I think you know, um, I think people stop playing for multiple reasons. You know, and I think it can be yeah. very different for different people. You know, I, I know of people that stopped playing and were very, very good musicians, stopped playing for maybe 20 years. And sometimes, as I said, various reasons for different people. Maybe somebody loses a family member. Um, you know, sometimes if if they have a bad experience when they're younger, there's all these different um, reasons that people might may may or st- may or may not um, continue playing for a while, and um, I suppose as well if if um, it depends on I suppose the personality of the person as well. You know, you are more of an introvert, more of an extrovert, and mm-hmm. do you how you how do you view the music? Do you do you view it as something that can enable things for you? You know, in expressing, in connecting with people, in or if you're more self-conscious, um, then it might be you might s- see it as being more debilitating. So I depend. I think it depends. I think for me, it was very much maybe a, a couple of reasons like that. I, I'm. It was 
such a big topic for me that I went back to college. Um, I did a master's and I pursued it then with a four year PhD research study on, on this <laughs> whole looking at um you know, our expression of music, um, what holds us back, what stops it, what this is something I just did four or five years research on. Um, so what was the what was the nature of your your PhD then? Your, your... It, was, it was an arts practice um, PhD, uh-huh. which was very which means that you look at your own. It's very self-reflective, firstly. So you yeah. have to look at your own self and your own performance, um, which is something I really wanted to do because I felt I felt that I was being um, I felt I was held back in my music and not able to express it in a way that I wanted to. And I suppose that's something I suppose lots of musicians would say. I suppose musicians are are very maybe self-critical about how they express it. You know, I could say I'll do that opening track again, please, because it was the opening track and I wasn't warmed up. And, you know, we, we I suppose most a lot of musicians might feel like that. Um, you'll have people that might never record an album because they mightn't be able to, they mightn't figure it won't be right or, you know, so I uh-huh. think I think I think in a lot of situations, um, the critique, the self-critique when you're a musician um, or learning music or playing it is predominant in a lot of us. And I think that's probably because, you know, music is emotional expression. So there's a lot vested in it. And um, is it ever, inverted commas, right, you know? Um, and I suppose, you know, I suppose I, what I learned a lot about myself in that research. And I also worked with other groups of students in the university over two or three years, you know, working with them as well in, you know, how do we get to express ourselves better in our music? And multiple things came came up to light. You know, sometimes um, people compare themselves to others who have won all Ireland's or who have produced different projects and you haven't and you know you're playing in in groups where maybe you don't fit in or you know there's multiple reasons and of course the biggest one of all is life itself can often get in the way um, of people of you know getting the time to invest in the music and that so I suppose like for me the, the catalyst was that year of researching my father's um, CD. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Dominic, you're there and you're doing this podcast now and it coincides yeah. with the last 12 months, you know, getting more serious about the music. And I suppose the thing I've learned lately um, is it doesn't really matter what age you come at it because, you know, life presents different things at different stages. So there isn't the one way to... Um, come at your music um, you know a lot of people invest a, the first half of their life in, in their in their musical prog- progression um, for other people yeah. family comes comes along first before they get that opportunity you know so I think it's different for everybody Did you then uh, not to ask you to kind of give me a, a sort of trite conclusion after um, all that research but for you personally was there was there a, like a nut in the middle that you kind of gone that you went ah, th- this is what 
this is what it was for me that that holds me back? Well, I, I suppose I drew a number of conclusions at the end of the research, but um, I would um, say that um, it was a combination of things for me personally. I think it's certainly um, certain experiences through um, my life definitely fed into it. But I, on the, f- the other way of looking at that is, I suppose, maybe my reaction to life experiences as well. So for um, not making much sense there, but I suppose, you do you know, the way sometimes you hear people say, um, you know, when something's going wrong in my life, I can turn around and pick up my instrument and play it. You know, mm-hmm. that they can just forget about everything else. That was something that I was not able to do. So I was intrigued with that. Um, in actual fact, the opposite, if life was challenging, the one thing I wasn't able to do was pick up my instrument. And I found that quite interesting. So I remember, you know, playing with that idea. And then I suppose I had I found that I had to work with that and kind of push through that. That's just one that's just one aspect of my own personal um journey um, so that I suppose in a way it's like anything it's not letting external factors um, prevent you from um, expressing your music yeah in a nutshell so or I suppose using external things as an excuse sometimes if that makes any sense <laughs> yeah I, um, I understand exactly what you what you're getting at I think um but it, but it's interesting, like it, it, it's interesting, like if if I think of my own personal experience, and Darren, feel free to jump in here. But like, um, if I think about my own personal experience of what's holding me back, say when I'm playing a couple of tunes in a session, for instance, or, or you know leading a couple of tunes, it's it's this combination of things that are all pulling at the same time. One of them is is an intrinsic shyness um, that's pulling me back and then there's this other um thing pulling me forward which is a desire to to show off a bit and try and play them <laughs> um even even though i'm also painfully aware of my own inadequacies and so like you, you know there's no end to forces pulling you in different directions and i guess i guess for me uh, i sort of i i i need the the positive impetus to to get through the thing has to be able to overcome all those other uh, li- limiting things, inhibitions, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I suppose that comes down to um, acceptance, really. Um, because, you know, I suppose if you don't, you're not going to, you know, play those tunes and show them off in your limited way or you're not going to, um, you know, um, lead the session or if we let those, um, I suppose, things in our mind, and that's what they are, they're things in our mind kind of um, stop us from doing it. Because I suppose, you know, um, there will always be people who like your music and there will always be people who don't, you know. Um, And that's the reality. Like, um, I've taken the step to produce an album recently and it's going to come out, but I'm very, very conscious it won't be for everybody. Some people will go, dismiss it and other people will go they really like it so I think if I think that's the the challenge for for people I think um, you know as you say that shyness as well I think the challenge lies in 
Um, this won't be for everybody, but it's mine and some people will like it. And am I OK with it? Can I accept where I am at with this music at this time? Because it's just a journey yeah. and it'll be different tomorrow. So so there's one other element there as well, um, which I, I don't know if I'm sure you would recognize this yourself, that um, when you described earlier the Nya, right, um, um, there's there's also part of playing for me is definitely the desire to get myself into that space, that headspace where the rest of the world is is behind a foggy glass and you're just sort of cocooned in the uh, the experience of of playing. I, I mean, you described it much better earlier on, but like, but the desire to get to that. You know the, the the desire to get into that state because it's such an an uh, elevated music uh, spiritual state in a way. Really, that's what it is. It's just um, even if it's only for two and a half minutes, you know, it's like oh. <laughs> so you have experienced yeah. it. You're saying, yeah, yeah. I think I suppose, you know, um, I would have looked at a lot of that as well. And I think um, when you're saying there, like to get into the headspace, I think that's that's the issue. We've got to kind of get the head out of the space <laughs> and kind of I think that's the secret. But um, and there's also another saying, did you ever hear it like fake it till you make it um, in a way, uh -huh. I, in a way, I suppose I practice and I still try and do it because, you know, um, when I when I would have started my research and my study would have coming from a space of, you know, not playing out front, not doing all these things. And then how do you break that barrier and, you know, exactly do what you're saying? And I think it's it's um, it's a very deliberate um, structure and a very deliberate practice. And I think the ultimate secret is, you know, to do it in your own private space first, get it in your own private space, you know, imagine that you are in that session, in that seat, in that place, in your house. And it's getting out of the head and kind of being more conscious of your body. And that kind of takes practice, yeah. listening to your body, your actual physical body while you're playing, because I think that helps um, connecting with I the with the body more than the mind. That's such a powerful part of playing, which I think everyone, most people discover it on their own. I definitely discovered it on my own. Like I knew, I, I knew playing with other people was important, but I never, I never practiced on my own playing with other people. That that because that kind of sounds a bit silly, right? You, you as a learner, you you think you sit and you practice to be as good as you can, and then you go to the place where the music is going to be, and then you perform at that level, and everything works. But there's actually a huge bit where you need to imagine the the shared space and that that's a i don't know that's a really important step i think in getting to that place where you're comfortable in either zone where you enter that when you get to enter flow because you are familiar with the space you can it's those magic times when you can start i don't know it reminds me of like the slow-mo guys where you can just i don't know when you get into that flow mode you can just hit that slow-mo switch and you're just really in your own time you're not pressured because you're so familiar with it. Maybe that's the nya you were talking about. Well, it, uh, yeah, and I suppose, you know, the word we use is nya, but I'm sure, you know, um, you might have a different word to exp express the same thing, but that is ultimately what it is. So, Clee, could we have another tune? 
Okay, so what am I going to play this time? I don't know. What do you fancy? Um, uh, I might try a jig this time, would I? Hmm? Sorry, uh, go, go on ahead. Okay, I'll take off the headphones. That sounded beautiful. What 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 was that? Um, that is a tune called "The Trip to London," and it's actually the opening first tune on the album that I've just recorded. Um, but yeah. I wanted to play that one there because um, it was. Um, composed by um, Paddy O'Donoghue um, the late Paddy O'Donoghue he was a flute player and he was from Clare as well and he used to come up to um, Scarif here many years ago and play a lot with Seamus Bugler um, who I mentioned the box player my neighbour um, yeah. so and yeah and I suppose that tune I think I've only heard it recorded once with um, Elaine Hogan and Sheila Gary um, so was nice to include one of um, Paddy's tunes on the album as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful melody. I love it. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. He's he's actually composed um, quite a few tunes in, that are really, really nice tunes. With the album, um, I hope you don't mind me um, quoting you here. I, I just wanted to ask you about this. Um, um, on your website, when you're talking about the album, um, you say, uh, I'm going to just read this a little bit if you don't mind. Um the landscape of the heart is vast, full of hills and hollows, smooth and rough throughout life. Listening to it with empathy, feeling and intent permits a broader perceptual landscape that will guide you home. And that's so up your street, Dominic. That's like I, written well, for you. I, that's just classic of me. I'm laughing. You're, you're reading that out because I just didn't think about it and put it up. Uh, I suppose... You know, I'm very philosophical and I love philosophy and I love connecting the dots with everything because I think everything is connected. Um, our music with ourselves and our heart and what's going on in our lives, I suppose. What did you want to ask uh, me about it? The idea of the the landscape of the heart and the vastness of it and the 
I, like you say, the hills and the hollows, the smoothness and the roughness. I mean, that's something that I personally like. I mean, I I struggle with um, perspective, right, and keeping those things in perspective and not letting one seem outsized alongside the other. And so, um, something something that 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 sort of really uh, resonated with me when I read that, and then I and then I was kind of thinking about your music and thinking about your own journey away from music and then back to it um yeah so um i don't really have a question it was more of just um thanks for saying that <laughs> oh, you're very welcome i suppose you know um why did i write that i suppose you know i can only speak about myself there's been um so many times in my life I felt so lost, you know, personally. Um, and, you know, um, I suppose um, at different stages um, needing something or there was a vacuum or, or a need, something inside, a great need, you know, and not really knowing what it was. And I suppose that quote comes from that a little bit, you know, because um, I suppose life will throw us lots of lots of different experiences. But that whole connection with our own self, our heart and who we are is really what will pull you through in, in everything. And and I suppose I just feel that when we can connect to that part of ourselves, it's probably very philosophical now, but when we can connect to that part of ourselves, that it will bring you home because you will find a different expression and something else will come out. You know, that's that's my take now. Um yeah. Um, is, you know. Wait, you, you mentioned that you love philosophy. Like, is there a particular philosophical writing that you like to to think of or to equate to to your music? Um, I, I, I no, but I suppose not. Not in particular, but I suppose the one thing that I do now is, um, I suppose I'm very more conscious and aware of. Um, my surroundings and sim symbolic meaning, you know, um, particularly, you know, connecting with just my native surroundings, um, landscape and that in innate connection we have with it. And I suppose, you know, sometimes we I've gone through stages where I mightn't have been as connected with it or um, life, external life gets in the way. And because I, I really do feel that um Wherever we're living, whatever we're doing, there's there's always these hints and clues around us to that we can kind of um, use metaphorically or symbolically to help us, you know, express or find that part of ourselves um, that we're searching for. You know, I think personally and I suppose um, I kind of sometimes, you know, get into that headspace or um, of that when I try and connect with nature or my surroundings, that just helps me connect more with myself, if that makes sense. No, completely. I think last time you spoke on the phone, I think we were we were talking about where myself and Tom live, which is a place called Barwon Heads. And it's it, like I, I love it's a lovely spot, but it's from a folk perspective, like I'll use that broad term. It's I find it uninspiring. And I struggle, I find it so inspiring in so many other parts of my life, like incredibly inspiring, particularly 
being near the ocean and being in the ocean but when it comes to to music I, I i really struggle with finding inspiration from my setting so i know completely what you're talking about because i have the absence of it and i feel like i'm looking for it it's funny if i travel into the hills even not that far away from here an hour away two hours away i i i, I again feel inspired but it is interesting how your environment can play such a crucial role in in your in what you and what you want to put out what you want to put into it yeah and i think it, it can be really a very very useful tool and it's often overlooked but you know also sometimes i think like because we don't we mightn't have a choice where we're living or as you say you might find your immediate surroundings uninspiring but i think you know in instances like that and i you know worked around this in my research as well you know the use of artifacts and images and I don't know, different different um, spaces. We can, even if it's um, in an artificial way, create um, a scenery that can draw us in and help us connect with it, even when you can't get to the hills two hours away or, you know. Yeah. No, but 100%, I put some paintings of some prints up on my wall in the studio here and there was, it just it changed everything. It changed everything. Just having... Uh, yeah, I put some pictures of it on Facebook a while ago. But anyway, it just it, it, to be in a space where you kind of you can just feel like you're inspired, surrounded by something inspirational. And 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 I don't want to bash where I live. Like it, it inspires so many other parts of my life, just not that particular part of my artistic expression. Absolutely, and I, I you know I think we all go through that as well. It's sometimes because you know a number of years ago when I found myself, I suppose. Um, maybe more restricted for want of a better word rearing my children kind of being confined to home very much and not being able to travel out much and that um, um, you can perceive that our our place of where we're where we're at is kind of holding us back but I suppose I've also learned that in restriction in, in, in times of restriction it can also um, bring a lot um to you as well in a, in, a, in, a, in a roundabout way just like you're saying mm. you know making that putting the prints on the wall creating that different environment realising you can do things in different ways so that we don't allow always our um, external surroundings will always have an impact on us but I suppose it's how we can use and manipulate um, things even in within restriction just like the pandemic even you know what what we can and can't do in times like that yeah absolutely so before we wrap up i just wanted to um talk about your community work and your work at uh, scarf bay radio so that's actually like <laughs> drilling aside you're actually in the studio there today right I'm actually right in the studio today and it's just slightly unfortunate but um, because of the drilling behind but it's to just um, repair the roof here in the studio. So yeah, I'm sitting in the seat that I normally sit in on a Sunday but um, as I said before we started it was um, I was a little bit more anxious today than I normally would be being at the other side of it. So I'm here I'm <laughs> recording and playing and chatting today with you from Scariff Bay Community Radio. So what's your show on there? So the show that I'm I've involved in here, um, I was asked to do it by Jim Collins, who's d- director of Scarif Bay Community Radio. Um, he's the brains behind the station. It was set up five years ago. And last November, he asked me if I would um, 
do a trad show for a half an hour for maybe a month or five weeks. And I said I would because I was just after finishing the trad festival and um, I'm here since and now doing a two hour show every Sunday called The Morning Dew. Um, It's a traditional Irish music show. And I also do some interviews with different people um, from time to time, just on services around East Clare and during the pandemic, you know, relevant discussions with different people um, with different services, even beyond mm-hmm. East Clare as well. So every week, yeah, Morning Dew, it runs from 12 to 2 on a Sunday. Yeah, lovely. Is, that, is, oh. is, is there a digital radio component to that as well? Um, there is, you mean online? Yeah, I just, I'm just wondering, I haven't listened to it from Australia. I wonder yeah, if I can. Yeah, there's, there's podcasts up there on Scarif Bay, um, radio online and there's, um, podcasts up from, of the show. Um, I actually have one more question, Clee, which is, um, uh, Darren, you'll know this. Um, uh, um, do you know Leo McNamara, Clee? I sure do. Where is he now? He is in um, America. He is in, I think, Seattle. So I took some whistle lessons from him about 10 years ago. And and funnily enough, you know, the conversations that we had were really part of the germ of this. Um, when I started talking, uh, when Darren and me started talking about it, the conversations I had with Leo um, were like I would go and have... Um, I'd be booked for like a half hour whistle lesson and I'd I'd get away like four hours later after <laughs> after a huge long conversation about, you know, um uh, O'Neill's Music of Ireland or um which was the best Bothy band cover or um you know just all sorts of stuff. It was just it was so great. It was s- such a lovely experience and I just kind of wondered if you if you'd bumped into him. Cause oh, yeah. Well, I'll just tell you, he's from Scarif here. OK, and I just live five miles from Scarif. But when I went to Paddy O'Brien in Tipperary for that two year period, at least for one year of it um, or for a certain maybe it wasn't a year, we used to pick up Leo um, at the end of his road and bring him. He came over with us. No way. <laughs> Yeah, he came over. Now, I might might be exaggerating, it mightn't be a year, but at least a half a year. He came over to Paddy O'Brien for a couple of lessons and we gave him a lift over um, as well, going back. Uh, we were in, yeah, we were in school, secondary school. So he might be might be just a year older than me, but be much enough the same go. He's He's uh-huh, been he's been over, he comes over and back home um, a bit. He hasn't been now for the last year. I think I missed him the last time. And his wife, Aurora, she plays fiddle as well. Lovely fiddle player. Well, um, if you if you bump into him, tell him um, I'm looking to have a chat with him for the podcast. So, <laughs> oh yeah, oh, God, right. I would love that would that. be so great. That would be brilliant. Well, Clee, thank you so much for for this today. Thank you. What will I finish off with? Uh, I'm not sure. I can play a jig, or I can play that composition that's on the album that Siobhan spoke about. Um, but it's an air, so it depends. What do you think? I, I love an air. Who's yeah. that? Who loves an air? Darren. Darren. All right. Okay.
That was brilliant. Thanks so much, Clee. That was really lovely. Clee, brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, Darren, you wanted to talk a bit more about the Nya, which we were mentioning there. Um, well, I just don't get it, Dom. But what's what's? I had this whole thing where I was likening the the Nya to Alan Watts, who is a uh, for anyone that I'm sure everyone knows, but for anyone that doesn't know, Alan Watts is like a 1960s um, British philosopher who took a lot of his learnings from like Taoism and Buddhism and, and philosophies like that and, and approaches to how, how you approach life, what you can get out of life, yada, yada. And it was, he really, really, really uh, accentuates living in the now. There is no future. The only thing that exists is right now. There's no past, there's no future, there's only right now. And music is a great... Um, Music and dance are a great example of that because you don't do it to get to the end or to be in a certain part of it. You're doing it to be in that moment. And I was thinking about the yeah, and I was thinking, okay, yeah, maybe after what Clay had filled me in on, this is all starting to make a, a bit of sense. But then I started finding holes in it. And then I kind of found myself going, am I just like an American saying, what does crack mean? Like, that's that's kind of where I feel I've got to. Yes, I see the philosophical side of it. Yes, we should live within the nya and uh, <laughs> live, live within the, the nya. And dance for dance's sake and not before for the rules. Just be in the moment of music of nya. Whatever you're doing, do it with the passion, and don't ask what the crack is. <laughs> All right. So um, I'll, I'll be really honest with you here. I I have a feeling that you're over not not overcomplicating something that's pretty straightforward but in a, in a sense it's like there's a there's a version of Chris Christopherson singing me and Bobby McGee and the little bit at the start before he's he's singing he says something like it's basically words to the effect of doesn't matter what it is uh if if it sounds like country it's country you know and I really feel that about the nya the nya is just it's 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 that sense that you have when you hear something and you just think it's got it whatever it is that's what it is it's a vibe it's a um i don't know that there's much to begin from trying to put many more words around it for me anyway that's i i feel like i kind of i kind of get it it's just it's something it's probably slightly different for different people and it's probably slightly different in different contexts um but that's what i understand it's it's the vibe it's the swing it's the you see, when you hear somebody playing, it's the difference between it's the difference between me playing a tune and Kevin Crawford, for instance. Except that, probably on occasion, even I've got a bit of the yeah, right? Even I can pull it off now and again. So I think the bit, the bit with me, the bit with me and the Alan Watts thing, and I'm not sure if it dovetails fully yet. Is I also have that reoccurring thing that I have around singing, and. Being a, like I think that living in the moment. I don't know how much the nya fits in here, but that living in the moment when I'm singing and not being get stepping outside the ego to to be able to be in the moment and not think about what it sounds like, not think about what it should sound like, but just sing and be in that moment. Which is I've expressed this before. It seems to be easier for me to do that with an instrument. I don't know how it would exp how the nya expresses itself. Like, but you you can Dom, but you can have also to point at it next time. You'll have to go see that there. That's the nya. Well, the, <laughs> um, the, the, there is though. Um, uh, there is 
movement in it, movement forward in time, because you are trying to get to the end of the thing. It's, I mean, you, your objective is, is like you are progressing through a tune when you're playing it, even if you're completely in the zone. I mean, that's part of the point of it, right? Is that you go from a beginning to an end and you're on a kind of journey and you're, um, it's a kind of experience and it's a kind of microcosm of life. But do you not find time slows down? It does. It, it's like, completely... When, I, when I'm really playing and I'm lost in it, like time disintegrates from what I know it into a different... I can think clearer. I can move different. Like I'm really in that zone. I'm not... When I say I'm in the moment, maybe it's not the millisecond to millisecond moment, but I'm, I know what's going to happen within this next bar. So I, I'm looking forward to... I'm looking forward and I'm confident enough that I know that the next note is already being played perfectly before I hit it. So I'm not thinking about playing it. I just know it's going to happen. So that that moment is really, it's a narrow band. Because I, 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 think about this, like when do you forget lyrics most? It's when your brain has that moment in while you're singing to say, huh, what's the next chord? What is the next verse? No, totally. It's not yeah, when, you're, yeah. when you're just... Yeah in it and you're belting it out and you're not thinking about what's coming you completely not you're in it you are the opposite of thinking what's coming next that's when you usually nail it no you're not thinking about what's coming next but something is coming next that's the you know so so it's not you're not static in it you are but is it it's only coming next if you if you stay in that spot if you stay in that zone though yeah, i don't know I, I i will say that like i i let's get philosophical. i think that um when I'm doing a one-to-one -one interview with somebody uh, and it's going well, then I'm in uh, I'm, I'm in that that space, right? And I also get into that space when I'm editing these episodes and when I'm uh, putting them together. I get very much into that space where I can sit down at 8 o'clock and then I look up and it's like a quarter to two in the I morning. I was going to say the nya yeah. is all through the edit of these episodes. True story. My friend, Adam Watts story. rang me on the facts and he said, just one last thing. <laughs> you, you lads have the, the, the nyas in the edit. Yeah, you know what? It's not for us to say that we've got the nyas, so we're relying on it. it. It's definitely something. I'm not sure it's something you can claim for yourself. Somebody else has to say it. It's like, <laughs> it's like, um, wow, you're so beautiful. You got, it doesn't, you know. You gotta, you gotta. It's gotta be coming from somebody else to have any real value. But anyway, that's you. I'm talking about you, listeners, and <laughs> and particularly uh, you, patron saints who've gone to patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims and become a, a patron saint. Um, if you haven't done that, please go along. You can support the podcast. You can uh, enable us to continue uh, philosophizing <laughs> at great length. Um, in um, yeah, in very inarticulate ways. So um, we're relying on you for your support. Clee, thank you so much for all your time and your amazing tunes, and for putting oh. up with these half baked ideas towards the end as well. And uh, we should say very importantly, Clee has two CDs available. Um, one is Beneath the Hedgerow, which we touched on in the interview, Irish traditional fiddle music, and then the other is the the one where. Um, she has collected songs that her father sang. It's called Songs My Father Sang, a tribute to Sean Donnellan. And you can get that on Clee's website, which you'll find uh, a link to in the show notes. and uh, Or you can go directly there, cleecreativechange.com. Clee being C-L-I, creativechange.com. So thank you, Clee. Thanks, Clee. We'll catch you all next time. See you next week. 
Please give Dominic and Darren 25,885 stars. Thank you.